Hola mis amigos, que tal todos? Alex here, Centered from Reality Podcast. It's Sunday, and I'm trying something out now. We're going to try it the next month, we're going to do it every Sunday, and we're going to see if people like it. If people like it, if I get good feedback, we'll keep doing it. If people don't like it, I think you can assume what's going to happen. We're not going to do it anymore. But anyways, this is going to be called The Sunday Countdown. It's going to be a companion podcast to Centered from Reality, and... Basically, the gist of this is that I'm going to find a topic usually related to culture and I guess more specifically pop culture, and I'm going to do a countdown top 10 issues related to politics. So for example, this week we are doing the top 10 best geopolitical plots in a Bond movie. So I'm going to be counting down the 10 Bond movies with the best geopolitical plots. Maybe ideas down the road, it could be top 10 most political Star Wars characters or most political themes in an Indiana Jones movie, something like that, or best political fiction or best protest songs, best political movies. You understand the trend here. So it's Sunday, we're going to do something different, and Obviously, this is the first episode, so we'll just kind of see how it goes, and I'll learn and go from there. But first, we're going to start... I I didn't have to start with something stupid and fun, and maybe we'll start every Sunday countdown with kind of a fun news story of the week. And this is a cheap heist in the Swiss Alps. The Economist writes here in quotes, Thieves braved a treacherous, treacherous climbing route in the Swiss Alps, to rob a box containing donations to a local climbing group. The Via Ferrata, or Iron Path, can take up to eight hours to complete. Climbers must scramble up 216 meters of ladders and cross over 2,000 meters of dangling steel cables to complete the route. The thieves were evidently motivated by thrills more than spoils, the article writes. The box held an estimated 400 to 500 francs, which is about 450 to 550 dollars. There's a lot I like about this story because it kind of feels like Point Break, but like a cheap poor man's version of Point Break. And I was talking with a buddy earlier, and I think he did bring up a good point is that, you know, eight hours, 500 bucks, not bad. But then again, they talk about thieves, plural. Maybe not great. Like, is it worth (laughs) crossing over 2,000 meters of dangling steel cables scrambling up 215 meters of ladders to split $500 between like five of you. Plus, you know, now you're kind of like a criminal a little bit. Is it worth it? I don't know. I just think about how we almost, or we were winning trivia on Thursday and then lost it all and got last in trivia on Thursday, double or nothing. And the prize was a $30 gift card, but there's also 12 of us there. So, you know, 30 divided by 12, I'll let you do the math. Not ideal. But anyways, I just love this story because it does feel like the movie Point Break. You know, adventure criminals out there trying to do the crazy. But at least in Point Break, they were stealing like multi-millions of dollars and doing crazy stunts along the way. I'm afraid of heights, so I couldn't imagine doing all this for $500. But hey, it's a crazy time we live in. Anyways. Let's get to James Bond. I've been wanting to do this for so fucking long, I can't even 
articulate how long. I have probably seen every Bond movie about 15 times. The reason why I'm interested in foreign policy, foreign work, geopolitics, geography, all of it, is because since I was young, I got into James Bond. And I think it was the globe trotting and the espionage and the Cold War plots and everything else related to James Bond that really made me from an early age want to be involved. I'll never forget, I had to be in elementary school still, and those were the first like more adult movies I really got into. And I watched them all, I just absorbed them all, and I still watch them all about every year. Um, I'm currently in the back nine of the Bond films once again. And they are so different, they are so diverse. The actors that have played James Bond, from Sean Connery to George Lazenby to Roger Moore to Timothy Dalton to Pierce Brosnan to Daniel Craig to whoever's next, they are just so good. And, you know, I'll, I'll, I'm sure I'll get some criticism from some listeners. Of course, the Bond movies are, you know, they have some problematic themes at times, especially the more outdated ones. Of course, imperialism, masculinity... Um, misogyny is definitely up there, of course. But other than that, they're just great movies that I think have always really impacted me. And I want to make it clear that this is not me ranking my top 10 favorite Bond films here. There's definitely going to be movies in this list that I don't think are the best Bond movies. And also there's going to be movies in this list that are good Bond movies. But instead, this countdown, this top 10 best Bond films with geopolitical plots, it's going to look at each Bond film and whether it has a powerful political narrative or geopolitical concept. And I'm just counting these down to one based on whether the plot is strong in geopolitics, politics, intrigue, more realistic. So little spoiler, Moonraker, not going to be on here. Not going to be on here at all. So... Number 10, No Time to Die. No Time to Die. This is the most recent James Bond movie. Ended up coming out, I believe it was October of 2021. Could have been could have been September of 2021. I was in Chicago, saw it once by myself, saw it again with a friend, and saw it again with my dad. Um, I thought it was a good movie, and... This movie was delayed, we have to remember. It was supposed to come out around the pandemic. Kept getting delayed. Blah, blah, blah. I don't think this movie is completely centered specifically around a fascinating geopolitical plot. I actually don't think this movie is Daniel Craig's finest. I think there's two others at least that I liked more. But I added it in in here as the last spot, number 10 on my countdown, because I do think that the movie had some fascinating features in it that are relevant towards real life and the geopolitical moments that it was released during. So before my three months of lockdowns in Spain, we were planning to go see this movie, me and my English, Spanish, Scottish friends. But then time and time again, it kept getting pushed back. Obviously lockdowns, theaters were full, or not full, the opposite of full, sorry. And it finally came out, like I said, I think it was late September of 2021. And it was supposed to, I think, come out in early to mid-2020. And, of course, the main reason was that theaters were closed. 
And, you know, they spent a lot of money on this. And this was Daniel Craig's final showing to be on the big screen as James Bond. And they didn't want to put this on a streaming platform. I know one of the biggest tragedies of the pandemic was Christopher Nolan's Tenet, which in my opinion was like a Inception meets James Bond film. It was pretty much put right to streaming. It was in theaters, but no one went and saw it in theaters really. And so I don't think the Bond people wanted that. While that's the main reason it was pushed back, I would also argue that the movie's plot was problematic. I don't know, I don't know if problematic's the right word, like challenging. Because let's consider that the entire COVID situation was around this. Basically, to keep it simple, in the movie, Bond is no longer working with MI6. He's no longer an active service member with MI6, kind of like the CIA for the U.S., And he is actually recruited by the CIA to help rescue or find a kidnapped scientist. And this leads to a powerful showdown with a very vengeful adversary who's played by Rami Malek. Really good villain in this. I think that's one of the highlights of this is Rami Malek's playing. And basically this villain has stolen a biological weapon from a very secure research lab and kidnapped the scientist. And this is a weapon that is armed with a technology that's capable of killing millions. Basically, it's a biological weapon that will be released. I think this movie could have kind of tickled the erogenous zones of every COVID truther or COVID conspiracy theorist known to man. The people that were anti-vax, lab leak. By the way, the lab leak could have happened. I'm not denying that, but... Basically, if you were a COVID conspiracy theorist on the vaccine or whether it was a bioweapon and all that stuff, this movie could have really tickled those erogenous zones and got you all hot and heavy. Uh, For example, in the movie, the virus is taken from a highly secured lab. It's used by terrorists to destabilize the world, and it focuses on a virus being internationally released to the public by, of course, a nefarious Spectre-adjacent group. It's not Spectre in this, but this is a guy who wants revenge on the world, and I don't know. Do you guys remember 2020, 2021? I guess even now to a certain extent. We had lab leak theory. We had conspiracies. We had Plandemic, that horrible documentary about how this was a Bill Gates plot to control people. We had the anti-vaccine rhetoric. We had the micro, uh, not the micro, yeah, microchips. You know, it just seems like I was talking to a buddy earlier and I think we were just talking about how like it seems like a lot of people got red-pilled during the pandemic And this movie had a plot that I think could have fueled a lot of conspiracies even more. So it's just fascinating that it was supposed to come out right before the pandemic started. Just talk about awful timing. And so even when when I first saw it in theaters, I, I like to watch movies like this by myself the first time. So I went to the theater alone and watched this. And I just remember thinking to myself, hmm, bioweapon targeted to kill people, taken from a, you know, security lab. Jesus Christ. Talk about timing. So that's number 10. And I think I think that does really fit in there. No time to die at number 10. Let's move on. Number nine on Her Majesty's Secret Service. By the way, probably, I think, the best Bond movie ever made. If not the best, top three for me. George Lazenby, the youngest to play Bond, Australian actor who was pretty much unknown. He was a model at the time. They add a lot of nuance and darkness to the character that I don't think we see again until Daniel Craig. Timothy Dalton as well, I guess you could say. 
But the movie is just so well done, and George Lazenby really goes into the character. The movie was okay at the time, but it was it was actually later that we kind of reassessed it and realized how good of a Bond movie it was as a culture. Of course, he loses his wife in it. There's death. The ending is depressing. We finally see Ernest Ravo Blofeld in person, not just the bald guy with the cat that you never see his face. And... It's also the movie that popularized the ski chase scene. This was the first movie filmed in the Alps. It involves ski chases, and it's just a beautifully made movie. I think it was filmed in six or released in '69. And anyways, the plot here, which I think is pretty geopolitical, and actually really is interesting talking about our modern era. <coughs> excuse me, is that basically there's a threat by Blofeld's Angels of Death, which are kind of like a beautiful group of women who are going to be sent out to do this. And their goal is to render all all food plants and livestock infertile. And this is because of a group of brainwashed angels of death. The interesting thing here is that this was kind of in that same era where you did have cult figures like Charles Manson get popular who brainwashed their own group to do their bidding without understanding the ramifications of what they were doing. So I thought it was interesting, same period, where you have Blofeld, you know, number one of Spectre, basically wanting to render all food, plants, and livestock infertile by his group of kind of brainwashed women, the angels of death, mainly. And I also think this plays into a lot of modern conspiracies we have out there, about how our food has been either hijacked, taken out, poisoned. There's some sort of plan to, you know, eliminate portions of the population and create some sort of new world order. I think Spectre, you guys will notice, is going to come up a lot in this podcast because Spectre, obviously, this kind of nefarious third party during the Cold War. The James Bond movies obviously have the Soviets and the Americans, But then along the way, they also have Spectre, which is kind of like playing the Soviets off of the Americans. And Spectre to me seems like every conspiracy theorist's talking point. Kind of this shadow organization that wants conflict and wants control. So they do stuff like eliminate livestock and food plants and then create their own stocks and create a one world government, that type of stuff. And this movie, I think, is a really good one at... A, making Bond its peak performance, but also really getting into these conspiracies that are more and more modern in the normal age, from, you know, the right-wing talking points about the World Economic Forum, to the Davos, to QAnon, all this stuff. Like, I think I think Spectre is a good, good takeoff point for, how, like, how some of these things took off. Now, moving on, Live and Let Die, number eight. Roger Moore's first movie, and I would argue probably his best I rewatched this about eight months ago, and it still holds up. And the storyline involves basically a Harlem drug lord who is known as Mr. Big, who is planning to distribute two tons of heroin for free, basically, to put rival gangs, drug barons, whatever you want to call them, out of business, and he wants to become the sole supplier of heroin. I think there's a lot of relevance relevance, sorry, now to 
the war on drugs and all this other stuff that we see now and how the cartels are functioning, how the U.S. government has not been successful in stopping that. And the interesting thing in this is that Mr. Big, this Harlem drug lord, is revealed to be Dr. Kananga, who is a corrupt Caribbean dictator who rules a fictional island where opium poppies are secretly farmed. The island is called San Monique. And the movie really gets into voodoo, a lot of kind of more Caribbean folklore. Really a fascinating movie, and I kind of wish more, I mean, this is more of a critical side of it, but I kind of wish more of Roger Moore's movies took this tone. But I think the reason why I think this movie is really interesting is because it was released during the height of kind of a film era that was known as Black's Ploitation. And basically, <laughs> there's a lot of archetypes and cliches that are depicted in the film and a lot of black exploitation movies, which are like derogatory racial epithets, like honky stuff, black gangsters, pimp mobiles. It was kind of this really interesting era of film, and Live and Let Die really dives into this. And it's interesting because the book came out so much earlier that so the book wasn't as much influenced by this, but the filmmakers really dove into this almost like critique slash writing on the wings of this whole black exploitation era. And sorry, I can't say that word. I struggle. But it also departs from the former plots of Bond films. You don't have like a crazy supervillain trying to destroy the world. Instead, it really focuses on a theme that is really common in black exploitation films of that period and that is drug trafficking and kind of the inner city, the pimp mobile, black gangster vibes. Again, I'm not con condoning any of this, but that was just the way the movie was made. And it's interesting, too, because you see it really focusing on more drug dynamics in the United States and how different groups try to exploit populations, use foreign countries to get their supply and then basically monopolize the market. And I think that's interesting now when we look at, I, I've talked about the Colombian connection, I've talked about the war on drugs, and how we're seeing Colombian and Mexican cartels basically still oversaturating Latin American and American markets involving drugs. I think there's a lot of interesting stuff there. And if you haven't seen this movie, I highly recommend jumping into it because it does touch on some very fascinating topics that are, I would say, very topical to this day. Next one, I have a little bit less to say. Number seven, Goldfinger. Goldfinger is one of the, I think it was the first high-grossing Bond film compared to From Russia with Love and Dr. No. This movie really came out of the gates on fire. And, you know, my, my dad's probably the one I credit with getting me into the Bond movies. And I know this was his favorite. He talks about it as a kid, seeing it and just being mind-blown. And I have to agree, it is definitely one of the best Bond films. Of course, there's definitely problematic stuff like the pussy galore stuff and Sean Connery somewhat being problematic as Bond and his forceful nature and misogyny. But, of course, his role as Bond is, I think, just so so classic in so many ways. But in this case, the film's plot, again, I think this kind of goes to a lot of the modern conspiracies in a sense. That's why it's so topical when you talk about geopolitics. The film's plot has Bond investigating gold smuggling by a guy named Arik Goldfinger, who basically has his own counterfeit supplies of gold and his own and, and his own gold supplies. And basically, 
Arik Goldfinger plans to contaminate the United States bullion depository at Fort Knox. They want to make it so contaminated that it destroys the gold market and people have to rely on a new supplier of gold. And that's where he comes in. So he wants to cause like hyperinflation in a sense and completely undersaturate the market, I guess you could say. And it's, a, it's an interesting concept, interesting movie. And I think it does get into, this is the same area where the United States was still on the gold standard, obviously. Richard Nixon pulls us out of it. But it brings up other questions about what does it mean to actually own gold? How is international currency, how is our international monetary standards regulated? And what does it mean for the international community if a country that really controls the gold supply all of a sudden was to see it contaminated? And I think the movie brings up interesting points. Like, I will say, of the movies I'm mentioning, this one's not just super exciting when it comes to geopolitics. But again, I think this does play into how we see geopolitics and global economics associated with gold supply, the gold standard, and how markets just speculate. Moving on, number six, Quantum of Solace. Daniel Craig's second outing as James Bond, following the death of Vesper Lind, the woman he fell in love with, found out she was being blackmailed because her lover was being held by Le Chiffre and his syndicate, which I do believe down the road we find out was linked to Spectre as well. Anyways, this starts as kind of a revenge tour. Bond is trying to find the people that killed Vesper. And of course, it leads him to understand that there's a global syndicate that has people everywhere and is trying to play countries against, excuse me, against each other. And this is, of course, Spectre. We don't find that out until two movies later in the movie titled Spectre, where Christoph Waltz plays Ernest Ravo Blofeld for the first time since I think like the 80s, which is really cool. But that movie, Spectre, does not actually make my top 10 here. But anyways, this movie's interesting because I don't think it's actually one of the better Daniel Craig ones. It just seems a little bit too convoluted, a little bit too all over the place. And I guess following Casino Royale is really difficult. Casino Royale is definitely in my top three to five, maybe five Bond movies. It's tone, it's energy, it's story. Also being kind of, well, it was the first Ian Fleming book. Really good. One of, well, the only new Bond movie based on literature. Anyways, in the film, Quantum of Solace, Bond teams up with Camille Montes, who is played by Olga Kurielenko, French-Ukrainian actress who is amazing. And they are trying to stop a guy named Dominique Green, who is working with a deposed dictator in Bolivia, Bolivia to stage a coup d'etat. And the idea is Dominic Green and Spectre are going to be able to get access to a dry desert region of Bolivia that has oil, or could have oil. <laughs> I won't spoil it. And they will also help get this gentleman back into power. And it's the idea of foreign government, or actually shadow groups like Spectre, working with a deposed dictator with bad intentions to access the country's natural reserves, get him back into power, and do something what I would call like resource colonialism. And there's a part at the beginning of the movie where Dominique Green is talking with the deposed dictator of Bolivia, 
and they're talking about how Spectre slash Dominic Green will provide military, private military, sorry, and they will help stage the coup, and they just want natural resources. This is actually something super relevant because when I think about private providing private military, like a foreign group providing private military and the ability to do a coup in exchange for resources, that sounds like what's happening in Africa right now. It reminds me of the coups occurring in which the Russians and the Wagner group have helped, you know, um, opposition military juntas in places ranging from Sudan to Niger to Burkina Faso to Mali. It's been interesting because basically the Wagner group in Russia, the Wagner group I think you could argue, argue is a pretty shadowy group, and they've offered private military access to the juntas. They've offered the ability to make sure that the democratically elected government or the opposition government does not come back to power. And all they want is access to raw minerals and resources. In South Sudan, for example, the Russians and the Wagner Group were, until recently, able to help evade sanctions in Russia by pretty much dominating gold mines. You have to think about in Mali how the Mali opposition and now the new Mali military junta that runs the country are backed by Russian and Wagner forces. In Niger, that is definitely on the table as well. Burkina Faso as well. There seems to be a trend, and I've talked about it on the podcast before, where you do have other governments, bigger governments, shadow military groups getting involved in smaller country conflicts promising dictatorships as long as you give us your resources and the quantum of solace is a movie that literally dives into that i wish it was better made because the idea of it is so well done it is really well done and watch it again like just just because i'm saying it's not one of the best of daniel craig's it doesn't mean it's a dud by any means it's no moonraker (laughs) moving on we are to our fifth one which is thunderball the fourth installment of the Bond movies. We have Sean Connery filmed in the Bahamas, very, you know, Caribbean underwater vibes. You have harpoon guns, really a good time. And the film basically follows Bond's mission in which two NATO atomic bombs were stolen by Spectre. And Spectre, in this case, holds the world ransom wanting a pretty low amount of 100 million pounds in diamonds. And if they don't get that, they will use the atomic bombs to destroy unspecified cities in either the UK or the US. Later, we learned it's Miami. And Bond ends up in the Bahamas. He encounters Emilio Largo, who's an eyepatch-wearing number two for Spectre. He works with the CIA a lot of underwater battle scenes. It's the first Bond movie to have a running time over two hours, and it's an epic adventure, one of my favorites. And I think this one is is unique in a lot of ways because it's one of the ones to me that really plays off of the fears of the time involving the Cold War. So many people at this time were afraid of the threat of atomic bombs and what they could do and what impact they could have. And in this case... You kind of have the worst case scenario here is where the Soviet Union and the West, NATO, have been in a war, an arms race, to create more powerful nukes. And 
a third party, a terrorist organization, a shadow organization, gets access to them, steals them. And this is something that I think is relevant today. It's something that keeps world leaders up at night. I know Barack Obama's talked about this. George W. Bush had talked about this, where what kept them up at night was that Pakistan had nukes, for example. But because of the terrorist scenario inside of a place like Pakistan, you always worry if a third party could take the nukes and then use them in a very nefarious and dangerous way. And I think this movie, ahead of its time, obviously plays that scenario out. Of course, it's light. It's James Bond. Sean Connery does a good job of mixing action with slapstick, tongue-in-cheek humor. But the end, the end thing is that the Soviets and NATO have created these weapons, and now there's the risk of them falling into the hands of someone more dangerous. And, of course, this is a theme that occurs in other Bond movies as well, but I think this one was the most prescient, the most topical involving this and it's such such a good movie that gets into those themes about compromise espionage and just what is the moral complexity of creating these weapons when there's always the chance that they could get into the hands of someone who really wants to wreak havoc all right number four the living daylights oh the living daylights sorry great great movie great theme um, the Living Daylights at number four. <laughs> Basically, this movie goes from the Rock of Gibraltar to Vienna to Morocco to Afghanistan. And along the way, you see Timothy Dalton do his first appearance as James Bond. And it's amazing. This movie, I think, balances the end of the Cold War and the collapsing Soviet Union and the def- basically a lot of defection that's happening at the time, along with also the war happening in Afghanistan with the Mujahideen and what's happening with them, along with just kind of an idea that, you know, the Soviet Union's splintering. And basically, so you have, of course, Bond, and in this case, he helps a KGB officer, Georgi Koskov, and he defects. Now, side note, he de- he defects, but turns out to actually be working with kind of a third-party militia guy who's an ex-military guy from the U.S., but you'll have to watch the movie to pick all that up. But basically during this debriefing, Koskov, who has basically defected, talks about how there's a policy of assassinating defectors, but then he's (laughs) instated by a new KGB head, and this is Leonid Pushkin, who was actually played by John Rhys Davies, Indiana Jones, Gimli, and Lord of the Rings, great actor. So you're led to believe that this Georgi Koskov is good, Leonid Pushkin is looking to hunt him down, but Bond basically explores this and realizes that there's a counterplot that surfaces, and there's a shady arms dealer, Joe Don Baker, great actor, and a pair of Russian assassins. It's really fun. It's a really fun movie, and... I will also add that this actually is an interesting time capsule into what was happening in Russia, or sorry, not Russia, what was happening in, in Afghanistan, because Bond and his love interest end up um, fighting alongside the Mujahideen against the Russian invaders. And this, to me, is just fascinating to watch, because we all know what happened during this period. A lot of people think Afghanistan was kind of the final straw for the Soviet Union, all the money they put into it. And you see just in this how the Russians are just struggling. 
But it also shows me how fascinating this time would have been because we know, obviously, when you have the ISI, the CIA, and other different Pakistani and Western groups putting money into Afghanistan, eventually it does lead to the rise of the Taliban, which is basically the Mujahideen 2.0. But it's just interesting at this time to see how the Mujahideen were seen as freedom fighters against the Soviets. And I found that part to be probably the best part of this movie. And I guess on a side note, Timothy Dalton comes into the Bond role as the antithesis of Roger Moore, who was wisecracking kind of B-movie comedy. Like, it was so tongue-in-cheek that it just seemed like a spoof. And Ian Fleming, apparently, his books really reflected someone like Timothy Dalton. Timothy Dalton really does seem like what he would have done to approach Bond if he wanted to see Bond on the screen. And Timothy Dalton actually said that he would, in quotes, bring a sense of responsibility to the work of Ian Fleming. And much like George Lazenby and Her Majesty's Secret Service, as time has gone on, I think we've really looked back and thought this movie was really well done and Timothy Dalton is really underrated. But I think this movie just really sums up the breakdown of the Soviet Union and the war in Afghanistan, and just how the West was responding, and how also the Soviet Union was getting less reliable. Now, we're going to see an interesting trend for these last three here. So, at number three, Goldeneye, Pierce Brosnan's first time being James Bond. And I'll admit, I didn't like this movie when it first came out, but I was young. I think I was in elementary school or middle school when I first saw it. But I've revisited it now three times in the last two years. Seen it, yes, that's correct, three times in the last two years. And it's a really interesting movie. And the more I've got into history and geopolitics, it's a movie that I really think is fascinating. It was the first Bond film made after the dissolution of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War. And it's a powerful background for the entire plot. And... I think this is an interesting tale about the vitriol and anger that was felt in Russia after the fall of the, so- uh, of the Soviet Union, and it's an important lesson for today and what we are seeing, because you see f- former Soviet generals, Exenia Onatop, a Georgian fighter, um, Alex Trevelin, some of the bad guys in this, but there's a lot of vengeance and anger basically that came out of World War II and the Cold War. And, you know, when you look at today how Putin talks about his anger and vitriol about the end of the Soviet Union and how the West always turned its back or whatever you want to say, the propaganda they put out. But it's an interesting lesson into, I don't know if we ever really solved the Cold War or really brought each other back to the table, but we just kind of kept our grievances resting but not dead. And I think, I think Alex Trevelin, 006, Bond's best friend in this, is a really interesting piece of this. He's Bond's friend, Bond thinks he dies, and he comes back and is actually working with the Russians with Project Goldeneye, which is a Russian satellite that <laughs> could cause some problems, let's just say. And he is actually seeking vengeance for his parents, which are Lins Kozaks 
who were betrayed by the British by being repatriated to the Soviet Union after basically working with the Axis powers during World War II. So what happened here, and I think it's really interesting, is that you had the Cossacks, and there's an event called the Betrayal of the Cossacks. And it occurred when these ethnic Russians and Ukrainians who were opposed to the Bolsheviks and the Soviet Union were aiding the Axis powers and they were handed over by British and U.S. forces to the Soviet Union after the end of World War II and they were put into camps, tortured, blah, blah, blah. And I think that mixes up like two different sets of grievances here. You have all these, like this Russian general in the movie and others that, you know, see the Soviet Union as a glorified thing that failed and they're angry about it. But then you also have Alex Trevelin, who was a Cossack. And there's a lot of interesting articles about how, yes, the Cossacks worked with the Axis during World War II, but was it because they were allied with people like Nazi Germany? Or was it because they were against Bolshevism and they were already ethnic minorities inside of Russia and they were being treated poorly. And it was just interesting that the British and U.S. forces did hand them over to the Soviet Union where they were treated poorly. So this movie is about historical grievance all coming to the table. And it makes for a very fascinating Bond movie, no doubt. And so GoldenEye at number three. Now, I might get some criticism for putting this at number two, but I am putting From Russia With Love at number two, not number one. I will say that I'm not going to tell you what number one is, but if I'm ranking movies, From Russia With Love would come ahead of number one. But in terms of politics and geopolitical plots, the other one's better. But anyways, From Russia With Love is probably my top two best Bond movies. I go back and forth between it and On Her Majesty's Secret Service. But just one little side fact for you. it um, <laughs> It's considered one of the best entries in the series. Total Film Magazine in 2004 named it the ninth greatest British film of all time, the only Bond film to appear on that list. So, yeah, pretty fucking good movie. And, yeah, that's 1963. And second Bond movie, basically what happens here is that Bond kills Dr. No in the movie Dr. No in Jamaica. Sorry, spoiler, but the movie's fucking old, so... I think you'll survive. But anyways, they basically Spectre begins training agents to kill Bond after Dr. No's death. And there's Ronald, or sorry, Donald Red Grant, Robert Shaw's character. And they lure Bond into a trap. And there's a person who's Spectre's chief planner, Czechoslovak chess grandmaster Kronstein, and he devises a plan to make Bond attempt to get a lector cryptography device from the Soviet Union, and it's in their consulate in Istanbul. And there's a Spectre operative, sorry, Rosa Kleb, who is former Soviet counterintelligence, and she oversees the mission. And basically to set the trap, this Kleb gal, who was a former Smirsh agent, recruits a cipher clerk at the Istanbul consulate, um, Tatiana Romanov. And she unwittingly gets involved in the plan, and it becomes this kind of back and forth where Bond and this gal are are thinking that they are working together to do something they're not. And the movie is really fun. What I would say 
is prob probably my favorite thing here is that Bond works alongside the head of MI6's branch in the city, who's um, Ali Karim Bey who is just a badass character. You also see a lot of what it would be like to be in Istanbul during this era. You also see this... I, I think there's some humanization here where you do have Romanov and Bond, two different sides of the Cold War, who are actually kind of brought together from the nefarious actions of Spectre in the middle. And it just shows me how small the world is and how crazy people are in it. That's always one of my big takes takeaways. Sorry from this movie, I can't speak. <laughs> Apologies, I'm struggling to speak. But I think you understand what I mean here. Is that this is just one of those movies where I, I think it's cool to kind of see. They try to bring two people together under a lie, and it actually brings them closer together. And I think that's really fun. And, anyways, number one. Number one. Not the best Bond movie by any means, but I think it's the most prescient political movie of the Bonds. Tomorrow Never Dies, Pierce Brosnan. It basically follows Bond as he attempts to intercept Elliot Carver, who's played by the great Jonathan Price. And Elliot Carver is just kind of a media mogul who is power mad, and he literally is trying to engineer world events to initiate World War III. So they basically <laughs> cause attacks like blowing up a submarine. Or was it a boat? I forget. Submarine or boat. And they already have the articles published, or, or sorry, printed and ready for release when they blow this up. And it happens in the South China Sea. And so they blame China for it. And they already have papers released. So Elliot Carver is literally trying to start World War III. And he's orchestrating it because he wants to sell more articles. And this is an interesting look into how media manufactures crisis. Elliot Carver spends the whole movie until his demise creating, manufacturing events that will trigger governments, trigger politicians... The world goes to war, and he makes more money. And it's a really interesting critique into what the media does now. Den of Geek, which is a pretty good tech website on tech films and all that, it observed, in quotes here, it's an improbable setup, which was likely intended as a satire of Rupert Murdoch's unaccountable media empire. But the risks of such technological manipulation have since proved to be frighteningly possible. And Den of Geeks also highlights here in quotes, Technology wasn't the only modern danger to be preempted by Tomorrow Never Dies. It also offers a revealing peek into the confused state of the British national psyche, which might help to explain the country's ongoing Brexit debates. And that's why this movie is really fascinating, because yes, you do see a Britain that is more isolated, more confused than ever before, more nationalist, but also like hesitant to do anything about it. And then you also see the rise of Elliot Carver, who definitely is a Rupert Murdoch type of, type of figure, who wants to manufacture division, manufacture violence to sell more. And there's criticisms of this movie because it looks too much at print. It doesn't look at media like the internet. 
But this movie, I believe, came out in the late 90s. Yeah, I think it was like 90s. Actually, here, I can just... I can be responsible and just pull this up. Let's see. Tomorrow Never Dies. Yeah, 97. I was correct. So it, it came out in a time where I don't know we could predict social media or all this stuff, but that's the main criticism is people don't think it goes enough into the other means of media because in this it's all print still. But one way or another, this movie I think is a warning about how media may be more invested in the reaction to an event instead of the facts of an event. And this movie always sticks with me to this day because it is so prescient in our climate right now. People don't want to know the truth. They just want to think that they understand what's happening based on what they think is happening. And so if you're already a war hawk or you're anti-immigration and there's a media story that's inflammatory and maybe incorrect, you're going to act based on what you want to hear, not what's actually true. And if the media just feeds you that narrative then it's going to be really beneficial for you, even if it's incorrect. So Tomorrow Never Dies, number one. Tomorrow Never Dies is not one of my top five Bond movies. It actually is my top ten. Maybe down the road, if I start this other podcast I've been wanting to with a buddy, which is only Bond, it's going to be, we'll find some pun for the name, but I, I do want to start a Bond podcast where we break down episodes and characters and political themes and Everything from, you know, the problems of Bond to the strengths of Bond. I want to get that get that going. And maybe in that we can do a actual ranking of the Bond films. But for now, those are the top 10 Bond films related to political events and geopolitics. Anyways, next week we're going to do another one. I'm going to find another cultural, pop culture topic and then count down from 10 how it relates to geopolitics. Anyways, this is the Sunday Countdown companion podcast to Center from Reality. You can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean. You guys know the rest. Let's get back to this on Monday and we'll get back into politics then.